Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with clinical psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. Noam Spencer. His best-selling novel, The Good Psychologist, was translated into six languages. A movie he co-wrote, The Other Story, premiered at the Toronto Film Festival and was one of the most successful Israeli movies of 2018, receiving broad international distribution. Dr. Spencer teaches at Otterbein University, and he's also a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice, specializing in the treatment of anxiety disorders. Noam, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Glad to be here. My pleasure. So I know you're a writer and I've come across some of your writing. It's very interesting stuff. And I was inspired to talk with you about some of your thoughts about psychologists and psychotherapy. And I know you've written about that in the past. So I'm excited and looking forward to discussing that subject with you. To begin with, though, you're a really interesting guy, and I'd like to get a little bit more of an idea about your personal background, what led you to become a psychologist and along your career path, where you came from, and then let's go from there. Well, thanks for inviting me. This, is, uh, this looks to be fun. There's nothing in my background that foreshadowed uh, this career path. You know, I was born and raised on the Israeli kibbutz which is a small agricultural socialist commune. That's kind of a style of life, very unique to Israel. And my father was a farmer and I was expected to follow suit. I also disliked school as a youngster. I dropped out of high school early. I never finished high school. Mm. So academia and psychology, and not to mention America, uh, were not on my horizon growing up at all. Yeah. I think the shift came for me after I finished my army service in Israel. Men do mandatory army service for three years. And I came back to my kibbutz and went to work in the fields you know, as a farmer, as I was supposed to, um, but quickly soured on the farming life. I, I had no aptitude for machinery, no feeling <laughs> for plants and no desire to get up at 4 a.m. So I asked to be transferred to work in the children's house, which was the sort of communal childcare uh, center on the kibbutz, uh, where kids were raised together, studied, slept, ate in the same building. It was a unique child-rearing arrangement to the kibbutz system. And I became kind of a glorified janitor slash cook <laughs> uh, for 24-year-olds. And that wow. allowed me to get up at seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. What happened over the following five years that I was working, three things happened. Uh, first, I, I found myself fascinated with the children mm -hmm. and, and attached to them in a powerful way. Second, I met a, an old psychoanalyst who uh, actually studied with Anna Freud and mm -hmm. Renee Spitz. And he gave uh, monthly workshops to the childcare staff. And we became friends and I became fascinated through him with uh, Freudian ideas and started reading Freud. And third, as a young, you know, as a 20 year old in this sort of uh, small co closed community, I developed a uh, wanderlust, you know, curiosity Mm -hmm. and desire to get out of the small confines and, and experience and see other things, other places. And so these three uh, threads culminated in putting me on the, my current path, I think. You know, you've, you've done some interesting writing. I know maybe you could tell us real briefly about this novel that you've written, because I, I know that, that the themes in that is psychotherapy and psychologist as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was always interested in writing, but I never, you know, had the, the courage to make it a profession. And, you know, where I come from, intellectual life, the writing life was not 
uh, held in high esteem. You know, mm. We were about working, you know, planting things in the ground uh, and doing that stuff. But I always had a knack for language and an interest in writing. So I, early 20s, I wrote for a newspaper in Israel. And then when I moved to America in my mid-20s, I continued to write columns and interviews from here. And then at some point, I started writing novels, and I wrote three novels in Hebrew. Hmm. And the second one, there was a, a conference in Jerusalem, and my editor, Israeli editor, was having a drink with an American agent, and she told her about my book, which take place in the Midwest, and it's about psychology. And so the agent said, we'll have him translate the chapter. So I translated the first chapter. She asked for the rest. I did that. And then she sold it in New York in, in an auction. And within a few months, we had you know, translation rights in six different countries. And it became a big bestseller in Germany, in Turkey, in Israel, too. So that was kind of my adventure in, uh, in fiction. Mm -hmm. And it was fun because the, the book basically is about a psychologist yeah. who sees clients and teaches and has, uh, you know, relationship issues. So I could write about what I knew. Yeah, right. It sounds amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to picking up a copy of the book. It was very intriguing when I read the description of it and I'll make sure to put a link to that in the, the show notes yeah. for today. Yeah, well. I think it's, I think the unique thing about the, the book is that most of the writing about psychologists in contemporary fiction is about either sort of bad or somehow corrupt or rotten psychologists. Mm -hmm. And it's often about psychodynamic, psychoanalytic psychologists. And my protagonist is actually a, a, a decent professional uh, who's a CBT guy. Imagine that, a decent yeah, a, a book about a decent psychologist, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and, you know, you'll be surprised, I think, because, or, or not, because you write. Uh, so I think you understand that it's more difficult to write interestingly about a good guy and about a bad guy. <laughs> right, sure. It's easy to show a person who's got their own pathology and is messed up in every which way, right? Like that's titillating and, and easy. So to write about a good role model of a psychologist. So I'm really interested in checking it out. So I'm looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk, you know, this concept of psychotherapy is interesting. And for people listening to this show who've never had therapy, or even for some that have the therapeutic process, I think can seem a little mysterious. You know, we, there, there are these sort of commercialized sensationalized ideas about therapy, but really what goes behind on behind closed doors is between the therapist and the patient. And it's, I think it's very mysterious for a lot of people. And I came across some writing that you did about how to spot good therapy. And I think it does a great job explaining some of the pieces about therapy that would be important for somebody to know about what therapy is about and how to know whether it's effective or whether it would work for one. And I'm thinking we can go through some of those points and talk a little bit about them. Mm -hmm. And that would be very helpful for people, I think, to sort of deconstruct that and demystify it. Okay. So, you know, let, let's start off, Noam, by talking first off about therapy in general. I know there's lots of different modalities of therapy. There's different types of therapists. There's different approaches and schools of training. And so when we're thinking about therapy as a general concept, how does one even start approaching this with thinking about what does therapy do for me and how do I know whether therapy would be useful and to figure out what kind of therapy I might need to begin with? How do we even start with that? Yeah. It's a broad question, but I, I think we can get some handle on it. First of all, I think in kind of as a general framework, good therapy is effective therapy. Uh, it's a, a process that helps the client live better as a consequence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a useful analogy here is uh, a good therapy should feel a little bit like a good workout. 
you should be challenged, but not traumatized. Uh, mm. There may be some pain, but there shouldn't be injury. And at the end, you may feel both uh, exhausted and energized. And over time, as you do this, you should be seeing yourself building strength. So that's kind of the, the analogy that, that I use to conceptualize this process. Now, when we talk about how to choose a therapist, how to enter this process, uh, again, it's, it's not an easy question, uh, but I think there are multiple rivers that flow to this ocean. So there's multiple paths to getting yourself to finding a good therapist. First thing you can do uh, these days fairly easily is educate yourself about different therapy approaches and also different therapies around where you live, different therapists, and get a sense of which one of these approaches, which one of these uh, professionals sing to you, you know, vibes mm -hmm. with you. Mm -hmm. That's one way to go about it. I think another way that's often necessary and can be useful uh, is trial and error. A lot of things in life and a lot of things in, in healthcare and medicine, there's no way to circumvent the trial and error process. It's the mm -hmm. same when you try different medications. Uh, you're going to need to try a few until you find the one that works for you. Sometimes it's the case with therapy where you're going to have to go out there and see a few people and get a sense of the situation with each and decide which way you want to go. Patients are sometimes reluctant to do this. There's some reasons, utilitarian reasons, you know, it takes more time and energy, but often they may be worried about, you know, offending a therapist by not choosing them. Yeah. But I think good professionals uh, won't get offended by that because we want uh, clients who are good fit with us. So if the fit is not good for the client, it's better for them to, to go somewhere else. And that mm -hmm. helps everybody, uh, prevents everyone from wasting time. So that's another approach. I think it's also useful to look for refer referrals within one's community. There's wisdom to the community generally. And a lot of therapists uh, work in the community for many years and get a reputation, uh, develop a, a network of connections. There's word of mouth, and that can be very useful. So if you if you have people you like and trust, uh, uh, and you can ask them which person worked for them, you, know, you can ask them for a recommendation. Uh, that can be a good path to finding the right the right fit. And then I think. You want to look at the therapist credentials and education and expertise. It's a safer bet to pick someone who's well-educated and who has experience in seeing people who deal with the same challenges you're dealing with as a client. And these things can be verified and checked out. So I think that's important before you... Mm -hmm. You get to work with any professional. You want to see that their background is solid and their credentials are solid. And I would say finally that uh, it is important for people to know, for potential clients to know, that the research uh, shows fairly clearly that the type of technique uh, or theory that the therapist uses in conceptualizing a case and, and moving the work forward is much less important to the success of the therapy than the uh, client therapist rapport mm -hmm. and the level of trust and the therapist uh, genuine empathy with the client and the client's expectations for change and motivation for change. So if you're aware of that, you may look for those qualities uh, first, which would be a smart move. Yeah. So two things that you said, I just want to reiterate, because I think they're so important. First, I really like the personal trainer analogy, because a good trainer is going to train you in the gym, they're going to know how to push you and make you work because you know, you have some goals that you are trying to achieve, but they're aware enough not to hurt you. 
and to know how to hold you in that space to train you without you being injured. And that's a safe space for, for training. It's also a safe space for therapy. So I like that analogy. And the second one, I think you said makes so much sense that finding a good fit, there could be excellent therapists out there, but they may not be the right ones for you. And so finding the rapport and the fit is, is a, is a really important part of that. Yeah. So, you know, in your writings, let's talk about uh, several points here that I think you've, you've talked about that are really important. So the first one is, and this seems so obvious, but I think it, it's, it's important on a deeper level. Good therapy is not friendship. So let's explore that a little bit. Mm. Yeah, this is a confusion that I think exists uh, out there in the public uh, to some degree that the therapist is a, a friend for hire, basically. Yeah. But uh, I don't think that's the case. And I think the, there's three main differences between your friend uh, and your therapist or between a friendly relationship and a therapist-client relationship that's productive. The first one is your relationship with the therapist. You only have one relationship with your therapist, and that's the client-therapist relationship. With your friends, you can have multiple relationships. You can go to business with your friend. You can you know, have sex with your friends. You can do all kinds of things in addition to, to just being friends. You can't do any of that with your therapist. Your therapist is always and only your therapist. So that's the first piece. Mm -hmm. uh, second piece is that in friendship, both people's agendas are fair game for inclusion. So if we are friends, I'm going to talk about my problem and then you will talk about your problems and that's okay. But in a therapy relationship, the client's agenda is the focus. And the whole interaction is focused on helping the client get to where you want to go. So you're not in therapy to meet your needs. Uh, you're in therapy to help the client meet their goals and needs. So that's mm -hmm. the second separation. And the third difference is that Friendship doesn't need to have a purpose or a goal other than its own existence. You are friends with your friends because you enjoy the friendship. Friendship doesn't have to go anywhere. It exists for its own sake. Therapy doesn't exist for its own sake. It's, it's a means to an end. There's a purpose and a goal that we're working towards. And so it's a relationship that has a momentum that has defined goals and defined purpose. So I think these are the three basic differences between friendship and the client therapist relationship. Yeah. So let's talk about evidence-based. Good therapy is evidence-based. You've made a point of that in your writing. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. Well, I think that to the extent possible, your behavior as a therapist in the therapy and the proposed intervention strategies that you put forth uh, need to be guided by scientific knowledge about what has been shown empirically to work best. So I don't think it's um, good therapy to bring into the, the therapy space ideas that may be hearsay or, you know, your grandma used to, it worked for your grandma. So maybe <laughs> it will work for the client or, yeah. or just tradition or just intuition. Or I think you have a responsibility as a therapist to uh, communicate the science properly and bring it into the situation and use it to help the client. Mm -hmm. I think that separates legitimate therapy from a lot of uh, things that may call themselves therapy, but are not based on a body of evidence, yeah. on empirical knowledge. So Noam, when you're talking about evidence, like I know with some psychotherapeutic techniques, cognitive behavioral therapy is sort of the classic example of that, where there's been sort of very well-studied 
therapeutic techniques that have protocols and have modules to be able to implement them. And they're very, very effective. They can be very effective, especially for very specific therapeutic needs, anxiety disorders. That's a mm. good example, often panic disorder, agoraphobia and whatnot, and yeah. even PTSD. But you know, there's also these other more psychodynamic traditions that may not have been researched in terms of empirical data in the same kind of way. Are those still valid as long as they come from sort of a solid theoretical background and the therapist knows why they're practicing the way they are and it comes from, a, from some place that makes sense? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there is a fair amount of evidence that certain psychodynamic intervention and certain psychodynamic approaches work well with clients. And, you know, for example, to an extent, in a psychoanalytic tradition, when you get the client to speak about difficult stuff, the fact of what you're doing is essentially exposure work. If mm -hmm. the client faces their fear, faces their stuff that was banished for a while or pushed down because it was scary, now we're facing it. And we know that facing your fear is an important, powerful tool to get rid of fear or to overcome fear or to learn how to manage it well. So you can get at that principle of that movement in various ways with various language and from various theoretical directions. But what you're doing, if what you're doing is um, facing some difficult truth, then you're doing something that uh, there's a lot of science behind it to support that kind of move. So I think that's my thinking about it is generally like this. The, the other piece, for example, is um, rapport and you know, honest feedback and empathy. So if we know from research on common factors in therapy that these things predict success, you can achieve good rapport and trust uh, in the context of CBT, cognitive behavioral treatment, in the context of dynamic treatment, and in the context of other types. And you should strive for that because the evidence is that that is an active ingredient in change. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. My thinking about it is more about there are certain processes that are enacted in therapy that are shown to help people change and how you, which language and which style you use to enact them is less important than having them enacted. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So let's talk about good therapy affirms the client's basic human dignity and worth. It's light on judgment and advice. It's a healing, corrective experience, obviously understanding empathy, attention, acceptance, and encouragement. You've talked about those as being a part of it. So what can you say about this part of uh, therapy? The first part is that many people, because of what they see on TV and in the movies, I think, and you know, the pop psychologists are basically presented as people where you come to them with a problem and they give you advice mm -hmm. about how to solve it. So for many people, their idea of therapy is that you go to some place and you get advice. But I think this is not what the essence of therapy is. Advice right now, especially now, advice is a dime a dozen. Yeah. You, can, you can get advice on Google for free and it can be very good advice. But my contention is that people generally don't change from advice. They change from an experience. Mm -hmm. And if you reflect on your own life, I think you will see that the big changes in your life happened after you undergone some experience, not after you heard a piece of advice. And what therapy can do, and I think what good therapy does, is provide an experience as opposed to providing advice. Generally, that's the first thing. The second thing has to do with judgment. And I think most people who come to therapy have been judged in some way. You know, society may judge them, spouses may judge them, employers may judge them, friends may judge them, and they may judge themselves harshly. 
And if you think about it, all our relationship in life generally involve judgment. So your employer asks if you're a good employee and, you know, and your partner asks if you're a good partner and your parents wonder if you bring shame or pride to the family. Mm-hmm. Therapy is a unique space where this kind of judgment is suspended. And that's really one of the uh, healing ingredients, the unique ingredient, ingredients in therapy. You're going to be accepted and met where you are. The movement is not towards judgment, but towards understanding and mm-hmm. empathic understanding. And when people are in a space and they experience this non-judgment, this acceptance and this attention that you're tending to them and, and trying to understand them, not looking to judge them, that experience has healing properties. It's a very powerful experience and it creates a space where the client feels safe to explore all kinds of difficult perhaps forbidden feelings, emotions, behaviors, honestly, because they're not going to be abandoned, attacked, criticized, judged. So they can explore those things and figure out the way to go in the direction of health. So that's why I'm saying that the uh, therapy should go light on the judgment and advice and heavy on the experience of being in a presence of a benevolent, attentive therapist who is genuinely interested in understanding you and has the ability to have empathy, imagine them how life looks to you. That's the active ingredient in good therapy, I think. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think that's very well put. And for many people coming into therapy, they've never had that kind of experience before ever in their life. So yeah, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And on similar note, good therapy encourages and models accurate, honest, and timely feedback and communication. So what does that look like? And how is that maybe also different from what people typically experience who haven't had yeah. that? Yes, yeah, so you, you, you're right to notice that there's a difference because, you know, in, in real life, the truth can be very dangerous to speak in day-to-day, you know, life in the public sphere or even in our uh, intimate relationship. Uh, it's a very potent thing, the truth. And, you know, potent, powerful tools have to be wielded carefully. Yeah, Uh, In most of the spaces we inhabit in day-to-day life, we need to be cautious about the truth of our feeling and the truth of our thinking and and our inner experience, the totality of our inner experience. We need to moderate and curate this so we don't cause conflict and hurt and get ourselves in danger and so on. But therapy is a place where you can actually do these things without fear. Mm -hmm. It's a space designed that you can speak the truth. You can be totally honest about anything. And the therapist is going to look at the information you provide as a client and use it to understand you better and to move the work in the direction of your goals. Mm -hmm. They're not going to use it to hurt you, to demean you, to judge you, you know. And so this is very unique to therapy. So I think that's an important piece. The other has to do with modeling. You know, human beings, we're a social animal, and we've the, one of the ways we learn is by watching others. Yeah. And so the therapy is a situation where the therapist, by their presence and by the way they interact and by the way they think and relate to the client and by the way they relate to themselves in the presence of the client, inevitably model some things to the client. And it's an opportunity, you know, so if you are a genuine person who feels comfortable in your own pants. And if you make a mistake, you can admit to it without trying to get defensive or attack or being self-loathing. 
you're modeling something to the patient, to the client. And they can say, well, this guy is comfortable, even though they're not per perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I can do that. So I think that aspect is very important in human interaction. And the last piece is feedback. You know, we learn when we get accurate, fast feedback. Uh, that's one reason, you know, the uh, video games are so popular because you when know. you play a video game, you get feedback immediately and it's sure. accurate. It's yep. honest. Therapy involves learning. You're learning new skills, new ways of behaving, new ways of thinking, new ways of managing emotions. So, and if the feedback is good and honest and timely, the client learns. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point in the therapeutic relationship, because the therapist has an obligation, I think, to be honest, you know, with what his or her assessment is of what we're talking about, what's going on to provide the patient feedback for growth. But the therapist has to be modeling that and doing it the right way with a sense of compassion, a lack of judgment. Hey, this is what I see. And I hear you telling me right now, this is causing you trouble. Let's talk about why this is difficult for you and try to understand this better free of any kind of a judgment, but also being honest about, you know, what that therapist is hearing. And so mm -hmm. that sort of onuous, genuine, authentic communication, and hopefully modeling the same kind of communication back to the therapist about what the person is experiencing. Yeah. Here's another kind of interesting one. You talk about good therapy, encouraging a client's independence and competence, moving in the direction of improving the client resilience, independence, and decision-making and life competence. So you're taking somebody who comes to therapy, maybe they're more dependent, they're not feeling competent, and you're shifting them in that direction. What does that look like in the therapeutic process? We want to be maybe sort of precise here. So okay. when I speak about encouraging the client's independence, I'm not speaking about encouraging uh, the client to, you know, become an island onto themselves, separate from others and unrelated to others. Uh, that's mm. not the idea right. that, that I'm looking at here. Maybe a, a better word than independence is interdependence. And the idea that what you're trying to do is encourage and, and help the clients guide themselves in, in the direction of being able to pull their weight in the relationship, uh, manage their part of the interaction, you know, relate to people in ways that don't alienate others, but actually encourage others to support them and provide help because really, you know, if you look at research in positive psychology over the last, you know, 30 years, the strongest predictor of well-being, both physical and emotional, is good relationships. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I'm talking about uh, clients' independence and competence, a lot of what I'm talking about is how to work the relationship sphere, uh, relationship sphere effectively in ways that helps you create good relationship with people, which will then support your well-being, reduce your stress, uh, you know, protect you and elevate you. Mm -hmm. What you don't want to do is create a client who's dependent on you. Uh, the goal of therapy is not to give the client a fish, is to teach the client to fish, and then they can feed themselves, as the old story goes. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And it's a real sort of indicator for clients if, in the course of therapy, they are becoming more confident in their judgment, more uh, independent and in how they sort of make decisions and move in the world, more able to manage their connections with others in the world, uh, that's a good sign mm -hmm. that the therapy is working. If in the course of therapy, the, the client becomes more and more dependent on the therapist 
judgment, on the therapist decision-making, on the therapist word, on the therapist, that I think usually an indication that something is not working properly. Yeah. So one of the outcome measures, so to speak, would be improved healthy relationships between that patient and the people in their lives, whether it's in a work setting, friendships, intimate partners, child, parent, that kind of thing. Absolutely. I think uh, all the data, like I said before, I like to stay close to the data as I can, where there is good data. And the data shows that the link between good relationship and well-being is not just a correlation. It's a causal relationship. And it moves from if you have the skills and you do the work to build good relationship, you're building mental health, you're building resilience. So yeah, definitely a part of, a big part of the work in therapy is to look at how we do that, how we accomplish that. So good therapy considers a client's history and biography. And that in some ways, that's sort of like the classic Freudian thing. Tell me about your childhood, which people sort of joke about, I guess, but of course it's not all about all about just the childhood, but give us a little bit more information about why is the history and biography of each individual person important to therapy? Well, I think I can say two things about it. The, the first one is we all come from somewhere and where we come from affects where and who we are to some degree, to a significant degree. So, some knowledge of one's story of how one came to here will shed light on what's going on here and now. So that's important. Knowing something about the client's history and background is important in understanding where they are from this angle. I think also therapy is useful when it looks to identify patterns that the client has may have not noticed mm -hmm. and it's illuminating those and raising awareness of this is a pattern that's been going on. Let's see what that means and how to change into the more productive pattern because you life in life, we often pay attention to anecdotes, you know, the, you know, the wedding is a big event, but yeah. the quality of the marriage is not decided by how big the wedding was. It's decided by the pattern of how you treat each other day to day. Mm -hmm. So if you know something about the history, it allows you to see some patterns. And following the patterns, which means recognizing the habits, which means we can see what's not working and look to change it. I think that's important. And that's done through looking back a little bit. And then I think the, the last piece is, you know, history is a context of people's lives. And nothing has meaning independent of context. You can't understand anything that you're looking at if you don't understand something about the environment in which it exists, right? And, and things will change their meaning when the context changes. You know, if, if I'm... Uh, cheering and high-fiving my friends and drinking my beer uh, in a ballpark, that's fine. If I'm doing it at the funeral, <laughs> it's a different story. Now, it's the same yeah. behavior, but the context has shifted. So therapy, I think, is it's important in the, context of, in the process of therapy to examine the context of the client's life. And you can look at the cultural context, you know, the community where they are. You can look at the situational context, where, in what situation the problem shows up. And you also want to look at the historical context. So you look at, the, the, you know, where this comes from. That gives us a lot of information. So in this way, I think it's important to mind the background. Now, I want to say that Generally speaking, I don't think therapy necessarily need to, needs to focus on the past. Uh, I don't think, you know, life moves forward and we inhabit the present. 
Uh, so those are the things that we want to be very focused on. You, you can't drive a car looking in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, periodically, you can look, uh, but you need to be sort of facing forward. And also, we find that it's often not necessary to know everything about someone's past to deal with their difficulty in the present. So I don't need to know where and how you got a flat tire to fix it. I just have to find a hole and patch it. Therapy often need not focus on the past, but even when that's the case, some attention to the past is useful. Yeah. Well, with the idea about the flat tire, that paying attention to the past might be, are you getting a flat tire because you keep on driving down a road that has these potholes in it, right? Right. Right. And maybe driving down that road isn't the best way, but maybe when you were a child, that was the only road you knew to drive down. You didn't know that there were other roads to go down. And so examining that and helping the patient figure out like, this is where this pattern of behavior stemmed from. This is why it's here. We have an awareness of that. We can start making different kinds of choices. And I think like what you said, makes perfect sense with, um, history and pattern of relationships, right? Because people could choose the same kind of partners. They could get in the same kind of situation again and again and again. And examining the pattern there can be very helpful for somebody understanding why this might be coming up in the present and how to do it differently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think leading into that, you talk about this idea of taking into the account the client's subjective experience in their inner world. And of course, everybody's subjective experience in inner world is different from everybody else. There's, there's 7 billion different subjective experiences and inner worlds for people on our planet. And tell us in a therapeutic context, why that's valuable. Well, I think, uh, as you mentioned, the, you know, our individuality is sort of embodied by our subjective experience. That's, that's what defines us as selves, is that we have a subjective experience. And people, to a large extent, live within their experience and make judgments from within their experience. Uh, just like we live in our physical embodied body and skin, you know. We live in our psychological experience also. And so to understand what something means to the person, it's not sufficient to know what something means in some objective way. And the example I give is, you know, if I tested your mother with a battery of objective tests, she would come up average on most of them, Mm -hmm. like most of us. Uh, So I could say your mother is not special. And I would be objectively correct in terms of the objective measures. But your mother is in all likelihood special to you. And so her voice in your head resonates not acquired power, not from her objective characteristics, but from the subjective experience that you had with her. And if we don't acknowledge and understand that, then the client's behavior may make no sense at all. So my mother, you know, a client may be a 20-some-year-old and said, my mother is upset that I'm doing X. Well, if you look at the mother as an objective, you know, from an objective lens, you say, well, why do you care about this? She's just an average Jane from the street. She's not, she doesn't have any special knowledge uh-huh. special talent, special skill. What do you care if some Jane is telling, it doesn't right. like the thing you do? Well, that's not going to help the client. Yeah. So, so understanding the, the experience, the subjective experience and, and the lens through which the client interacts with the world will help us gain access to the world and then develop empathy, see th- how the world looks to them. Mm-hmm. And with that, help them maneuver in the direction of where they need to go. 
Yeah. You know what I hear from time to time, Noam, with my patients, and I don't, I don't know if you've had this kind of experience with your patients, you probably have from time to time, that you'll hear them saying, especially when you're getting to know them, my family was fine. It was just sort of average. My parents were, were, were okay. My childhood was unremarkable. You know, really nothing so bad happened in my childhood. So I, I don't want to complain about it. And they might say that, or another thing they sometimes say is, I really shouldn't be here in therapy. My problems aren't so bad. And I, I, I really shouldn't be wasting your time being here. In both of those situations, I think it's sort of like what you were talking about. Like, it doesn't really matter. You can't apply an objective evaluation to what's going on inside an individual person's life that person had a subjective experience with their parent or their family or their upbringing or something that went on that was difficult for them. It was their unique experience. And that's why they're showing up. We don't need to compare that to anybody else's experience. Yes. It's that idea is important. I think in therapy that objectively, uh, you know, somebody, you know, was frightened by a dog, you know, when they were little objectively it was a small dog and uh, no one got hurt and there was it was a trained dog and it wasn't going to bite you and uh, nothing happened so what's the fuss but if in the subjective experience of the child at that moment the dog was a scary monster who's who's menacing then you need to consider that right you can't dismiss that and hope to be helpful right a barking dog to a four-year-old could be traumatizing, whereas that same dog barking in the same way to an adult could be a completely different experience. But that four-year-old can go on and develop anxiety disorders because of the extreme emotional distress that they experienced at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we hear about good therapy occurring when the client does the hard work. And, you know, what do we mean by that exactly? What, what, does a, what does a client have to do to be doing work in therapy? Well, one way to think about it is like, if we take a sports metaphor, it's like the coach and the players. So the coach can coach, but he can't play. Mm-hmm. The player has to play. For the team to win, the player has to go out there and play. So the therapist can do their part but they can't take over the client's part. You know, there's an old saying, uh, even the king has to piss for himself. <laughs> right. Old Zen. <laughs> right. Uh, there's certain things that you have to do for yourself. And so people can support you, create a space for this to happen, encourage you, uh, but you have to do the work to get the result. And I I think in therapy, it's really important that the client does the client parts and the therapist does the therapist parts and there's no confusion. And when I say my way of thinking about it is, you know, I like to say to young therapists, you know, you don't want to work harder than your client. Yeah. Because ultimately, the healing, uh, it's about their life and their goals and what they want to need to accomplish. So their commitment to it has to be strong. If it's not strong, then the fact that your commitment to it is strong is not going to deliver the results. Their commitment to the work has to be as strong as yours. But what does that mean, Noam? What does it mean to say that a, a patient has strong commitment to the work? What do they need to do or to demonstrate to themselves, not to the therapist, that that they're doing the work that they need to to be committed to healing and re- reaching their goals? Some of it is sort of on a simple and, and technical level. So the client uh, needs to show up. Mm-hmm. And if there's homework to do then the homework needs to get done and if we're working on some behavior change program or if we're working on some you know cognitive restructuring protocol then we learn this in session and then they have to practice at home or if we're doing some 
interoceptive exposure, let's say, the client needs to practice at home because one hour a week is unlikely to change habits that took 20 years to develop and cement. Yeah. So, this is, so it's very important that commitment is demonstrated by taking the work seriously, like you commit to other aspects of your life, that you honor your, you know, your commitment to your relationship by showing up and by keeping your promises and by doing your part. It needs to be in same, the same in therapy for the therapy to work. Uh, and the other thing uh, underneath that, I think there's a level of, um, you know, therapy requires courage. Yeah. It requires uh, clients to summon their courage. There's effort to that, you know, to, to face your fear, to look at difficult issues, to be honest even when uh, you know you're not used to being honest or you're scared of being honest summoning your courage in the work is a form of important commitment on the side on the side of the client i think that's another definition for working what i'm hearing and i know is the case for a lot of therapeutic there's therapeutic exercises where there are concrete things to do between sessions. There might be go into the Walmart and monitor your anxious feelings and find progressive ways of getting deeper into the store, going into that scary fruit and vegetable section and thinking about the cognitions that you're having and, and your anxiety level. Those are some real concrete things or, or doing a journaling exercise or something like that. But mm -hmm. Even when there's not a specific homework assignment, I assume that what you're also talking about is just spending time thinking about what was discussed in the therapeutic session yeah. and thinking about how those topics, those lessons are affecting the way that you're approaching things during the week, rather than just sort of being oblivious to it and showing yeah. up at the next therapy session and not having given any thought or attention to what is yeah. being worked on. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, and I think there's the good evidence to show that this kind of cognitive and emotional involvement in the process, thinking about the issues, reflecting on what is going on, uh, that is linked to improvement and success in many areas, not just in therapy. In many areas, uh, human endeavor and human uh, behavior and if you engage and reflect on things and think through them, you tend to improve. And so I agree that this, uh, aside from the specific tasks that are sometimes prescribed or, or needed, a general commitment to take this journey seriously, pay attention, reflect on it, think about it, learn. You know, this is how we learn. When we focus and pay attention, we learn. That commitment is needed in therapy. Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is that for most people, you and me included, we spend so much time just sort of oblivious to what's actually going on inside our heads, how we're reacting and responding to things. And to the extent that we can take a step back and just have a meta-awareness of, oh, the I'm feeling this way in this situation, or I felt a little uneasy over there. And well, okay, let me pay attention to that. And why is that? Oh yeah, that is what we were talking about in therapy last time. Yeah. And that's a very important process. Yes. Often you see that when therapy works well, you will see this response kind of unsolicited from the clients where the client comes to session and said, this happened and I realized I'm doing it. You know, yes. something we talked about in therapy was an idea, you know, some principle or some habit or some pattern I became aware of and I caught myself doing Yes. It. And then, you know, work is being done. Yes. Yes. That is so rewarding as a therapist when, when you hear that happening, that the person has figured that out and caught themselves. Yeah. Yes. And I think, and I think it's also rewarding for the client in the sense that awareness is a precursor to change. So if yeah. you're on automatic pilot, then you'll have the same re reactions. You won't change. If you're aware that something is going on, 
then you have the power to shift the way you move, the way you interact with it, the, the way you, you relate to it. So that kind of work you know, is fruitful both ways. Absolutely. Noam, this has been a super fascinating and interesting conversation about spotting good therapy and about the therapeutic process. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with today. I think the, the process of therapy is a very good thing. Uh, that the therapy, therapy technology is, is effective technology in a sense. And so I think it's useful for people to take advantage of it, to move their lives in a good direction. That's kind of a general sense that I trust the process and I see the evidence that the process is useful and effective. And I think that's something that it helps if people realize this, that this kind of help, effective help is available. But I think from the perspective of the client, it's important for clients to realize, I think, that uh, they have a lot of say in whether the therapy will be good and successful. A lot of it is up to them. Uh, so it's important when you go into therapy to focus on uh, things, the, the basic factors that we know predict success. Uh, for example, the agreeing on goals, you know, working with a therapy to develop a consensus about where we're going and the basic means we're going to use to get there. Developing that consensus is interactive and the client has a lot of say. And if that consensus develops, then the therapy is much more likely to be successful. And the client's motivation and expectation is also very important to the success of therapy. So clients who come in you know, motivated to do work and open to learning about themselves and developing new skills, and they have, they have an optimistic expectation that this will bring results, they tend to do better. So it's a good mindset to come to therapy with, I think. Yeah. One follow-up question on that, Noam, that comes to mind for me is oftentimes you hear people who are getting to therapy for reasons other than them wanting to be there. A spouse is forcing their spouse to go. A child is being brought in because they're told they need to go. A lot of times we see people that are coming for reasons that really show very little motivation on their part. I'm wondering if you can say anything about that. Well, I think, you know, ultimately on some level, you know, the old joke, how many psychologists it takes to change a light bulb, two or three, but the light bulb has to want to change. Right. So I think to some degree, if someone is not motivated, it's difficult to engage them. It's not impossible because when you create a human relationship can bring about change. And when you, a therapist meets a client, it's a new human relationship. And there's a promise in that relationship that something will change, including something in the client's motivation. So that can happen. But it's a heavy lift. Yeah. It's less than ideal situation. My sense is that if you're facing, as a, as a clinician, if you're facing a situation like that, then your first job is to try to invoke in the client a motivation to do work. Without that, it'll be difficult to progress, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Noam, this has been really a fun conversation and I've appreciated your wisdom speaking with me about this topic. I am really looking forward to reading The Good Psychologist. I'm gonna to try to pick that up. I enjoy a good novel from time to time. So thank you for that. Best to you. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. That, that has, uh, was a pleasure. I enjoyed it greatly. And, uh, you know, hopefully I, I can take you up on that lunch <laughs> in Waikiki. If you are ever in Honolulu, you look me up and I owe you a lunch and it would be my pleasure. All right. Thanks, Aaron.
Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.